I would like to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. This morning we return to our series in the mornings through the book of Philippians by looking at the second half of the Christ hymn, which is uh, listed in verses uh, 6 through 11. A couple of weeks ago we looked at Christ's humiliation in the first half of the hymn. Today we are going to look at what this hymn says about Christ's exaltation in verses 9 through 11. And so this morning we will focus on verses 9 through 11, but I would like to begin the reading in, in uh, verse 5. So Philippians chapter 1, or chapter 2, uh, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2, uh, beginning in uh, verse 5, before we hear God's word, if you would join your hearts together with me in prayer. Please pray with me. Our Father and God, we give thanks to you for your love endures forever. Indeed, you are enthroned on high, and we praise you and thank you, O God, that you have come down to us in the person of your Son, and you have revealed yourself to us through his work, through his words, and you have given us knowledge of yourself by giving us faith and uniting us to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is at your right hand. And we recognize this morning, Father, that Jesus continues to speak to us from heaven through his word. And so we pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear the voice of our Savior speaking through Holy Scripture. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in uh, verse 5. Beloved, this is uh, the word of God. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. The second half of this Christ hymn begins with the word, therefore, therefore, in verse 9, God has done something. And this word is followed by two actions, and the two actions are performed by God. God is the one who performs these actions. Therefore, God has done something. God has done what? He has exalted and bestowed. And so then we are now looking at what God has done with his son, Jesus Christ, in this half of the hymn. In light of what his son has done, which was revealed in the first half, we are now looking at what the father has done with his son as a response to his humiliation in the first half of this hymn. And what did he do in the first half? Well, we saw that Jesus though being equal with God, did not count equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. He didn't use his status, his position selfishly. He did not act selfishly. Instead, he emptied himself, took the form of a servant, became man, and in humility he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him. 
and bestowed on him something. He has given to him something. He has granted him something. And so then it is here that we start back up. We start back up to the highest place imaginable, the place of divine honor. Remember, this is where we began in this hymn. We started at equality with God, the the highest place imaginable, equality with God, being God. That is Jesus. He's the Son of God. And from there, we started downward into humanity into suffering and obedience as a man, down, 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 all the way down to the darkest and lowest, most humiliating place imaginable, death on a cross. That is where we traveled a couple of weeks ago when when we first looked at this hymn. Crucified, Jesus crucified and therefore cursed by God. There is no lower place. This was how far Jesus descended how far he lowered himself. And why did he do this? Because he had our spiritual needs in mind. He considered our needs as more significant than his own life, and therefore he was crucified for us. But the hymn, as beautiful as that that truth is, the hymn doesn't stop there. The hymn doesn't stop there because the experience and the work of Christ did not stop with his death and burial. And so we start to move back up. If the work of Christ, if his experience did stop with his death, with his burial, then as the Apostle Paul said, we as believers in Christ are the most to be pitied because we live or we believe in a Messiah who is still dead. This is the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. And of course, Paul goes on to say, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And so that's not true. He was combating a heresy about the resurrection of Christ, but Christ has been raised. And so we are not in our sins. And this is what we are looking at, the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. And so that was the course of Christ's experience in history. And so now we follow that course in this hymn. Verses 9 through 11 reveal the vindication of Jesus the Christ. Whereas many would consider, perhaps still many consider in in Jesus' day, this is how they considered him, many would consider a Messiah naked, humiliated, hanging on a cross by nails that had been driven into his hands and his feet. They would consider that a person such as that as someone who either deserved what they got or was not who they claimed to be. That is how the Jews regarded him. That is why people still today regard Jesus as not what he claims to be, as the Son of God. His powerful resurrection on the third day, though, friends, it it proved and it proves otherwise. Whereas Paul says in Romans, again, he says in Romans 1, He was declared to be the Son of God in power, and this by his resurrection from the dead. And so then verses 9 through 11, they reveal the Father's response to all that the Son performed on earth as the Messiah of God. His response to what Jesus did as the only Redeemer of God's elect. That is what these verses uh, deal with. Because of Christ's full submission to the Father's will, the Father has fully vindicated his Son. And he has done this by raising him from the dead and exalting him. 
That is what we are looking at here. In other words, Jesus did not exalt himself. This is not to say that Jesus was not involved in his own resurrection. He was. We know this from Scripture. In fact, he said at one point, I have the power to lay down my life and I have the power to take it up again. He has that power because he is God. He is the Son of God. And so he can say things like that and mean them because he is equal with God, as we saw in the first half of the hymn. But as the Christ, as the Messiah, as our mediator, Jesus did not conduct his ministry and attain exaltation by acting selfishly. That is a lesson I hope we learn from this second half of the hymn. He humbled himself and therefore another exalted him. Namely, his father. Jesus did not exalt himself. He did not come to earth to exert his authority and to use his giftings upon people to lower them, to empty them, which he could have done. He didn't do that. He emptied himself. He lowered himself for others. And therefore, God has exalted him. He's placed him in the highest place possible at God's right hand. Jesus was not after the praise of men, as, for example, the Roman emperors were in the days that this letter was written. If you remember back at the beginning, we mentioned that Philippi was a Roman colony. And so these Christians were living in a Roman colony filled with Roman culture under the authority of a Roman emperor. Earthly kings like Caesar, like Roman emperors, and still even earthly leaders today, they wanted to be called Lord. They wanted to be worshipped as gods on earth, as some types of divine figures that had been manifested in the flesh. That is what Caesar wanted to be worshipped as, as a god. They exalted themselves. They did the exact opposite of what Jesus did. They did use their power to attain exaltation for themselves. What did Jesus do in comparison to them? He emptied himself and he let another exalt him. He let another raise him at the appointed time. And this is what God has done. He exalted his son. And so we also see here that his father granted him a name. So the Father has exalted him. He's raised Jesus. He has exalted his Son to divine status and honor. And he's also given him a name. Now, in the Old Testament, the names of God were to be revered. They were to be revered and worshipped because the names of God revealed something of the character of God. The names of God revealed something of his essence, something of his glory as God. So, so, for example, God gives his people the name Yahweh, which means I am, which refers to his eternal existence. He was and is and always will be. And so it's not just an arbitrary name. Yahweh refers to his deity, his glory as God. He is also called God Almighty in the scriptures. He is also called the Lord. We see here that he is referred to as God the Father. All of these names reveal something of his character, of his glory as God, and something of his relationship to his people. So, for example, we have psalmists singing to God like this in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul. 
and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Or Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be, or to your name give glory. Because the name reveals the person. And so the names mean something. The names of God mean something. For the, lip, for the Philippians who are hearing this letter, the name Caesar at this time was to be held in high honor. Anytime you would hear that name, you were to revere it, honor it, because it was the name of the highest earthly power at the time. He was emperor and leader of the mightiest empire in the world at that time. And so the citizens of the city were to honor that name. But this name, spoken of here in this hymn, is higher than that name. He is, Jesus has been given the name above all names, above that name, above the names of kings and emperors, even. The name, he is the name above all names. That is the name that he has been given, whether in heaven or on earth. Now, what is that name? He's been given a name, but what is the name that the Messiah has been given. Well, it appears from this hymn that this name is Jesus. God bestowed on him the name that is above every name, verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. But we also see here that Jesus is called Lord. And so he's been given the name Lord to the glory of God the Father, verse 11, so that every will tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We might think about how this all fits together. We might think in other parts of Scripture where the name Lord and Jesus are all used together at the same time. For example, in the book of Acts, in chapter 19, the Ephesian believers there in that section, we are told, were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so the name is Jesus, but he is also the Lord. This is the name that God's Son has received. Now, it's not as though Christ received this name only after his death. It's not as though he became Jesus at his resurrection. He was named Jesus at his birth. And he was named Jesus precisely because he would save his people from their sins. And that's what the name Jesus essentially means as Savior or the Lord saves. It's, it's the Greek version of the name Joshua, which means that. And so it doesn't, it, this doesn't mean that Jesus received his name after the resurrection. He was named Jesus at birth. He was the Savior at birth. Nor does this mean that there was a pool of proper names that God chose from. And he looked at Jesus and he thought that was the best name to give his son. That is not the case either. If this was so, then every person named Jesus or Joshua would receive the same honor that's talked about here. And of course, that is not the case. What, is, what this name refers to, Jesus has the name that, that is above every name. What this refers to is that the name is the name Jesus as it is used in reference to the Christ, the Christ of this hymn. That is who is being referred to here. This Christ who was obedient to the point of death on a cross. The Jesus of Holy Scripture. He has been given the name that is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. There is only one Jesus who can claim what is listed here in this hymn. Equality with God. 
suffering, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, as the God-man, being exalted to the highest place imaginable, the right hand of God. There is only one person who can claim these things, and that is this Jesus, at the name of this Jesus, the Christ of Holy Scripture. Every knee will bow. This is that person. This is that name. In verses 10 through 11, and so we see that God has exalted Jesus. He's given him the name above every name. Above every name. And then in verses 10 through 11, the hymn begins to explain the kind of effect that Jesus' Jesus' exaltation has and will have on people and all of creation. Verse 10, Jesus has been exalted. He has been given a name above all names so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now as we look at these words here, this could be a reference to the totality of creation. We read this every week, something like this in the in the Ten Commandments, when you see a reference to heaven and earth and all that is under the earth and all the creatures and the sea and everything, it's a, when you hear those words, it's usually a reference, as we saw in Revelation 5, uh, it's usually a reference to the totality of creation. All of heaven and earth bring glory to the Son, Jesus. He is the Lord. He is the creator and the sustainer of all of these things. And so he deserves the praise. He deserves the honor and the glory from all that we see in the world, all the beauty, the, the glory of the animals, of the stars and the sky, whatever it may be, all of it, it brings glory to Jesus Christ because he is Lord. We see this kind of honor and praise coming from all of creation towards Jesus Christ, which we just said in our call to worship in the book of Revelation. There Jesus is spoken of as the Lamb, and John sees a vision, and he says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And so we could look at these words in this hymn and think that it refers to all of creation, the totality of the created things in this world, they all uh, bring glory to Christ. They, in a, in a sense, bow the knee to him. And I don't think that would be entirely wrong to think that way. But I think perhaps within this context, and for other reasons, which I'm about to name, the focus here seems to be on men. The effect of Christ's exaltation on people. What will that be like? What is that like now? And what will, is that going to be like? The focus seems to be on all men living or dead. First, there is a reference. Why do I believe this? Well, first, there's a reference to knees bending and tongues confessing. This is a human, these are human actions. Also, this hymn comes within the context of Paul exhorting the Philippians to show humility towards one another. Right before this, he's telling the church, be, show humility to one another for the sake of unity. Consider others as more significant than yourselves. And he follows this up with the Christ hymn. So I think the focus that gives us, that leans us in the direction of that the focus here is towards what Christ's exaltation is in regard to men. The last thing is this. Verse 10 through 11 is virtually quoting a passage from the book of Isaiah, from the prophet Isaiah. 
In Isaiah chapter 45, God declares through his prophet his own uniqueness as the one true living God and the only savior of men. God doesn't save trees and animals. He doesn't atone for the sins of animals and trees and all the other things that are not made in his image. He, Christ died for men and women and children. And so God declares there in Isaiah 45, he is the savior of men, the only savior of men. Listen to these words, verse 22. This is from Isaiah. Turn to me and be saved, men, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. In other words, this hymn in Philippians declares by these words that Jesus is this God. He is the God of Isaiah 45. Come to me, men and women from all over the earth, and be saved in the one Savior, in the one God of all of heaven and earth. Jesus Christ is this Lord, and there is no other. Now, with this in mind... Many of us, the, some of us, the church, and of all, out of all the people in the world, the church will joyfully, freely, and cheerfully, with love in our hearts, bow our knees before the Father in humility. We will serve him because we love him. We will confess with our tongues that he is Lord and he is our Lord. His supremacy over others, though, will be involuntarily forced to be recognized. His lordship will be recognized against their will in some sense, whether in this age or in the age to come. This Jesus who died on a cross and whose body was under the earth for a time will come again. He will raise all the dead from the ground. He will gather his elect in resurrected bodies to be with him forever. It is us, the church, the elect, who will freely and joyfully Submit to him and bow the knee to his lordship. And we do that even now. We confess his name. And then Jesus will judge all the rest. And so what we learn from these verses then is that the exaltation of Jesus to the highest honor possible, Jesus Christ is Lord, will touch and have an effect on every single person who has ever lived. Whether they are living now, whether they have already of have died, whether they will live and die in the future, his exaltation will have an effect on every single person, every single individual who has ever lived in the history of all of creation. Kings, queens, princes, princesses, earthly lords, presidents, the rich, the poor, the slave, the free. It doesn't matter where you come from or where you ended up in this world. His exaltation will touch upon you in some way. It will have an effect on your life, and it will have an effect on your eternal life, your eternal destination. Now, friends, this recognition of Christ's lordship is not merely reserved for the future. The Philippians, nearly 2,000 years ago, were already honoring Christ as Lord, and we do the same today with our words and our actions. But there is a time coming when Christ's lordship will be made public, In the fullest sense of the term. When Jesus comes again, the second time, literally every knee will bow before him in one way or another. 
Now this is happening already, and this glorification of the Son will be fully complete on the last day. All to the glory of God the Father, as we see in verse 11. And all to the glory and honor of Jesus, who receives as Lord the same glory and honor that his Father received. This will all redound to the glory of the Father and the Son. And so this is what is referred to here, and this is what is taught in this hymn. Christ will be exalted, and so shall his people. All others will recognize his lordship in another way. Now, as we think about these things, Christ's divinity, he is Lord here, clearly. Christ's divinity does not contradict the confession of the Old Testament saints that God is one. You might think of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then you think about the confession here. Jesus Christ is Lord. These two statements from both testaments are in full agreement with each other. In fact, they fill each other out. God is one and Jesus Christ is Lord. Now this is incredible, friends, as we think about all that we've learned in this this hymn. To travel in this hymn from the dark depths of crucifixion to the highest elevation imaginable. Death on a cross. Now we are back up to lordship, divine honor and glory. It's beautiful to say the least. This is why I remarked earlier that this hymn casts its light upon all of this letter. But what does this mean for us? What did this mean for the Philippians? Well, in a nutshell, this confirms Christ's own words when he says to the church, humble yourselves and you will be exalted. Now, as we think about these words, no believer will ever become Lord. We will not attain to the status that Jesus has attained here. That dignity and honor is reserved for him alone. But we will share in the resurrection. We will share in his exaltation. We will reign with him at the end. No matter how far we are brought low in this world, in this dark age, he will exalt us at the end when he comes again. But until that day comes, we look forward to that day, our exaltation in Christ. It's guaranteed from these words. But until that day comes, how are we to regard one another? That's what we're dealing with, really, when we look at this hymn. Paul was saying, have this mind among yourselves. He's speaking to the church. This is how you are to behave and to act. This isn't just information, theology that you can wonder at. This is to have an impact on the way we live with one another. And so how are to we regard one another? We are to lower ourselves before others. Make ourselves go down, as Jesus did, and then down some more. Lower ourselves so that others might be Exalted. Look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others as Christ did, as this exalted Christ did. There is a final resurrection and exaltation for believers in Christ when he comes again. We will reign with him, as we have said. But think about this, friends. Should we not accept, expect something of the principle, humble yourselves and you will be exalted, something of what happened with Christ, shouldn't we expect evidence of that principle be manifested today, even among us? I think so. 
Think about this. What might this look look like? Well, a husband who lowers himself for his wife and children, who thinks not only to his own interests, but to their interests as well. For the most part, in a Christian household, how will the wife and children respond? They will respond with humility, the same type of humility, with love and showing him honor and dignity as their father, as a loving father. Similarly, a wife who serves her husband and children in humility does nothing from selfish ambition. If God is at work in this family, in this couple, in whatever relationship it is, if God is at work in them, will they not respond to her humility with the same type of humility? Will they not give her the honor and the dignity that she deserves as a loving, faithful wife and mother? They will. They should. It's the same in all of our relationships, or should be the same. Is that not some form of exaltation? It is. Is that not some form of exaltation? I think it is. And of course, we can apply this to all relationships in the church. The path, therefore, friends, to God-glorifying exaltation is God-glorifying humiliation. That is a lesson we should learn from this wonderful song. Now, with all of that said, Christians... You know, we, we shouldn't humble ourselves for others only to get what we want from them. It's not as though well, I'm going to do this and I better get the return on what, what I'm doing here. That's actually not true love. That's manipulation. Um, that is not biblical love. It's really just another form of selfishness if that's how we act. No, Christians humble ourselves. We lower ourselves for others, even sometimes before hostile opposition. Why? in order to glorify God, verse 11, to the glory of God the Father, to magnify Jesus Christ in our bodies, whether in life or by death. That's the reason why we should be doing these things with one another. We should do this, in other words, whether or not the other people we serve show humility and respond in the same way. How did the world respond to Christ's humility? Well, they killed him. Death on a cross. It was verse 8. And so we might be humble, but we won't always be treated by those in the world, those especially who are opposed to the gospel, with the same sort of love. But God exalted Jesus. And so we as believers in Christ, with the mind of Christ, we are to learn from Jesus. It is in the humiliation and exaltation of Christ that the love and the compassion and the grace of God is manifested to all. And we, as his people, are to show the same type of compassion and grace and love to one another, to the glory of God the Father. To Christ be all praise and glory now and forever. Let's pray, friends.